Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. So I have this theory that basically what our show has turned into is your mother. I mean, not to make this a gender specific thing, but, you know, your mother was always bothering you to wash your hands. Well, we did a whole show about soap and we've done shows uh, also about sanitation and stuff like that. Now we're going to do a show. This is from our vault. It's from our past. It's a show we did about the history of hygiene. Hygiene is so important now, but this is not our first brush with disease. Hygiene has always been important. And the amount of things that we've actually known about it has, well, let's just say it's varied and it has grown. And you're going to hear some of the phases we went through. So join us now for a trip through hygiene. So we're going to go way, way, way back today with the idea of hygiene and cleanliness. Although I want to start in 2018 for just a second here. And I will tell you a quick story that's based on another show uh, that we did. I believe it was produced by Betsy Kaplan. Today's show is produced by Josh Nalea. So the show that we did uh, with Betsy Kaplan about it was about the biome. And one of the things that a lot of biome researchers essentially say, and I'm summarizing right now, is that we're too clean. We're actually too clean. We've eradicated too much of of our environment from our environment. And and one of the one uh, researcher that we talked to, he said he hadn't really couldn't really back this up with peer reviewed science, but he was convinced that it was a good idea to get a dog, because dogs go outside and they roll around and stuff, and they just come into contact with a lot of stuff, and they stick their noses and their heads and stuff, and then they bring it all into your house. And provided that none of that stuff is an actual virus, <laughs> if it's just sort of dirt and bacteria and stuff like that, he said that's a net gain. And so I really took that to heart. And I, I just about every day, I just actually will press my face into my dog's fur and just inhale it, <laughs> which now strikes me as a completely insane and irrational, irrational thing to do. I hadn't really examined it by saying it out loud. But I think that also shows, you know, we're, we're constantly looking for some sort of realistic relationship to the idea of being clean. And I say we're constantly doing that here in 2018. We've been doing it for 4,000 years or more, trying to figure out what does it mean to be clean? How good is it to be clean? How should you get clean? What should you use to do it? And how does that uh, affect your status in society, your sense of morality? It's wrapped up in all these kinds of ideas. So joining us are uh, Catherine Ashenberg, a Toronto-based author of several prize-winning books, including The Dirt on Clean, an unsanitized history and all the dirt, a history of getting clean. Also joining us is Virginia Smith, a historian, honorary fellow of the Center for History in Public Health at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine and the author of Clean, A History of Personal Hygiene and Purity. So, Virginia, I'm going to begin with you and let's begin as close to the beginning as we possibly can in our, you know, sort of hominid prehistory on the grasslands of Africa. Was there already some kind of evolutionary incentive to be clean? Oh yes, absolutely, because of course we're, we're all primates, 
and the primates and the animals all have systems to be clean. So it's hardwired, really, into the body. The body has a sort of self-defense system which runs from the inside to the outside, you know, from the innards to the skin. And all animals have this, and they have to deal with outside dirt and inside dirt and evacuations and all sorts. And, of course, it all leads to grooming, effectively. So... If you study animal grooming, you're studying the beginnings of human grooming, and that's just fascinating, really. Well, let's take that a little bit further, because behaviors that get passed on from generation to generation have to be adaptive in some way. So it has to be the case, I think, if we can just reverse uh, sexes for just a second here, that if I am the hominid um, female and you are the hominid male, it has to be more... Uh, appealing to me that you're clean, right? I, in order to yeah, be willing exactly. to submit myself to you and to have progeny with you, I have to see in your cleanliness something that's more advantageous than that dirty hominid over there. So, I don't know, can you flesh that idea out? Yeah, absolutely. Well, to start with, it's, it's beauty is mm. one thing. What hygiene means is wholesomeness. Mm. So, it also means that person or that individual is sound and healthy and not decaying he sort of exudes a sort of life force and you think even even hominids would make that distinction as opposed to i don't know i mean are they are they interested in wholesomeness were they well well, apes presumably are and we are because we we love beauty beauty is attractive to us and beauty is sort of what clean means to a lot of people you know it's an aesthetic thing Catherine, I want to uh, uh, add you to this conversation. I think one of the things that we probably think, if we're not thinking very carefully about all this, is that cleanliness and in, in hygiene follows a pretty steady upward curve through history, that we used to be not so clean and we got cleaner and cleaner and cleaner. But I'm gathering from your work for, that what we know about Egyptian, Greek, and Roman civilization, Catherine, would suggest the opposite. Well, I want to answer that, but first I want to add to the fascinating things that Virginia's been saying. And I just wanted to add a little caveat that there always seem to have been either subgroups or groups of people who did not find clean attractive. I'm, I'm thinking of the large, large numbers of European peasants, particu- I'm saying particularly French peasants, because they've left us a lot of wonderful proverbs showing how virile and sexy and attractive they found body odors and dirt. They had one saying that I'll never forget, which is the you loves the stinky ram, which was their way of saying that the strong body odor was attractive to them. So I don't know how Virginia would fit that in, but I'm, I'm just saying there have been all, there have been groups who've been exceptions to that oh, yeah. feeling that we want to be clean. It makes us more beautiful and hence more attractive, and it's part of our well-being. I absolutely agree, but it's only that when you wash, you get sort of squeaky clean. But when you don't wash, all your body oils and your odors are still there. And, uh, you know, if you're, you groom your hair or you rub them in, you rub the oils in, so the smell is entirely different. Right, uh, and smell is a whole thing, you know, of, of its own, you know. Right, yeah. actually, Virgi- certainly have their own somatic. Yeah, this was dry cleaning, wet cleaning, etc. Really. But now, now I'm going to go back to your yeah, yeah, question okay. about. Yes, I started 
the research that led to the dirt on clean thinking, yeah, we were all very, very grubby. And then sometime around the beginning of the 20th century, we learned how to wash. And I found that I'm going to bow to Virginia about our instinctual need to be clean. But it's absolutely true that society has changed our minds dramatically over the course of the centuries about whether clean is good and what constitutes clean. Pretty much every society has thought that they were clean enough or appropriately clean or clean, but we would disagree with a lot of those definitions. So I think we've been tremendously suggestible about what our society has told us we should be doing in terms of washing. Well, I would think, Catherine, also, I mean, probably the ancient society I know the most about uh, would be the Romans. And the Romans were very keen, A, on class distinctions, and B, uh, on Rome versus everybody else distinctions. Right. And, and so the, the notion that we're clean and the Gauls, you know, and the Vandals uh, and the Parthians are not clean, that would be a very appealing idea, I would guess, Catherine, to the Romans. Absolutely. And there's a quotation which I can't quite lay my mind on today, around maybe 100 AD when they were going into Britain and the new Roman governor of Britain was advised, you have to do three things to turn these savage wild men wearing furs into Romans. They have to learn Latin, they have to wear togas, and you have to set up public baths. Those were the three essential ingredients that made you a Roman. Yeah, so Virginia, I think we see that a lot. That there's a, there's a sense anyway in in that the settled world versus the unsettled world. One of the demarcations might be public baths or some kind of absolutely. way of taking. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was going to mention that really. I mean, all the stuff that we've been talking about, the sort of biological stuff and so on, is sort of part of the, what I would call the tribal world you know, that's been going on forever, really, right back to the Neolithic, through the Bronze Age, and so on. But when you get to the neoclassical world, or the Greeks and Romans, it's more of an urban world. And their their power and riches are are based on sort of civic settlements and sort of orderly living in small, you know, relatively confined spaces with all sorts of new rules and etiquettes and everything else. Well, so, they need public bars, and also the Romans were shaven. Of course, that was a, one. Of, well, they weren't actually. Not all the emperors were shaven, but it did. It was a mark of sort of Romanness <laughs> to be barbered, you know. And you've got to have money. You've got to have. Yeah, you've got absolutely. to have the financial resources to create a world like this. So it, it's going to track pretty closely with the with the civilizations that have the most resources. Yes, exactly. A lot of them were trading ports, so they could import all sorts of new minerals and dyes and spices which were being found all over the place in the Bronze Age, and cloths and, and perfumes and everything else. The whole cosmetic trading system was, was enormous, including lots of olive oil and um, all sorts of things, furs and jewellery, all the sort of accoutrements of the body, really. And that was one of the first motivators for capitalism, really. So, Kat- Catherine, the, the Baptists among us think of total immersion in water uh, yeah. as a very specifically Christian ritual, uh, meaning a certain set of things. But it turns out that that not- notion of the ritualistic bath, of the immersion in water, that's pre-Christian, right? Oh, very much. And there, it, there seems to be something really, really deep about 
using water, to getting in water, or washing with water to mark this transition, you know, off with the old, on with the new. So for all kinds of transitions, a bath would be used or a washing would be used. Brides from ancient Greece and brides in modern-day Africa take a very serious celebratory prenuptial bath. Uh, Medieval German brides would embroider their future husband's bath shirt. That was that was a very mm-hmm. important present that they gave him that he would wear during his pre-wedding bath. The Knights of the Baths are called that because they took a ritual mm-hmm. bath the night before they were invested. And one of the washing rituals that meant the most to me, because I had written a previous book about mourning customs, was something that's almost universally done, bathing the dead, an action that has absolutely no practical purpose, but obviously meets very, very profound ones in our psyche. You know, um, Virginia, there's this odd balance between the sacred and the profane that goes all the way through this conversation. And it, it's almost a schizoid relationship that, in a way, in, for some of the reasons that Catherine is saying, we can understand even as far back as the ancient Greeks, and the yeah. notion of a bath as purification. But for the Romans, the bath was also a place of great hedonism, too, particularly to be able to have a warm bath. That was something else, right? Yeah, I mean, having a warm bath, in a sense, is associated with, with uh, was always associated with Hercules, who's sort of uh, the massive, strong, powerful god. The, the first shrines and baths were, were, were sort of together. I don't know if anyone's ever heard of uh, Mary Douglas's Purity and Danger, but she has a lot to say about the, the sacred and the profane and the fact that dirt can be magical and, and powerful and, and good. You know, the opposite is, is sort of also true, you know, cleanliness can be holy and completely pure. Everyone mixed these boundaries all the time, Mm -hmm. but there was a whole sacred system of purity rules which were profoundly important to all the major religions, Um, not only the um, polytheistic religions, but the monotheistic religions as well. And there was this strange story of, of the Christian church coming in after the fall of the Roman Empire and effectively banning all discourse about sort of bodily pleasures and hedonism, which the Romans had been so happy and casual and relaxed about, <laughs> including public baths. So public, well, they shut the public baths if they could. Uh, there were all sorts of martyrs, uh, who, particularly women, who went dirty. They sort of went on strike. They refused to sort of bathe themselves. It was quite a sort of scandal at the time. <laughs> but there were quite a lot. The, the virgins of Antioch and the virgins of Jerusalem are an extraordinary lot of women because they did also re- often refuse to have sex and very, basically became nuns, which was unheard, absolutely unheard of. And their dirtiness, their, what's mm-hmm. called alousia, this glorification of dirtiness in the early Christian world, that was a badge of their holiness, right? It was, absolutely, yeah. it was, completely. But, but, yeah. but, Catherine, there's also this sense that even, once again, pre-Christian, there's an investment, as Virginia's saying, I'd like to build on what Virginia said for just a second here, Catherine, there's a, there's a sense that dirt maybe when stripped off the body, also has a kind of power. So the the virgins and the early Christians that uh, Virginia's talking about, you keep the dirt on your body, you show you're not some kind of um, sybarite. But the Romans actually attributed a kind of power, right, to just all the gunk that might be taken off a gladiator or an athlete. Tell us about that. 
Yes, absolutely. It is said, it's it's legendary anyway, and it may well be true, that the Romans would collect the combined kind of sweat and dirt and oil that gladiators scraped off their... They didn't have soap. They used a kind of little rake called a strigil of scraping the accumulated sweat and dirt and oils off their body, and then it would be bottled in little vials. And, you know, the superstar gladiators vials of their bodily secretions would be sold, probably in one of the great imperial baths, which had many shops in them. Right. Tom Brady still does that, but it's it's rare. Um, it, it's it's rarer than it, than it used to be. So, so yeah, we have the, that sort of odd thing, that sort of combination of things. Oh, I know what I want to, before we leave this area, I want to also talk about warm versus cold. I don't know if, Catherine, if you want to uh, start. This leads to my, one of my favorite words that's going to appear on this show, which I believe would be oh, pronounced varm yeah. Uh, uh, yes, this is this is one of the most enduring debates I think in the history of cleanliness. Is this cold bathing versus hot water? And of course, as you can imagine, the Spartans, who rarely bathed at all and thought it was pretty much for sissies, only bathed in cold water. And the Athenians bathed much more, and was it was in warmer water. And then the Romans loved really hot water. And Edward Gibbon the chronicler of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, was convinced that the Romans' hot baths were one of the principal reasons why Rome weakened and fell, because the men had become so effeminate and given to pleasure. Even the Victorians, especially middle-class and upper-class boys and men who'd studied the classics, absolutely built their day around this bracingly cold morning bath. It was mostly only for men and boys, but it was very much a, a, a memento of their classical studies in the Greeks and Romans. And, well, do you want to say your favorite word? Go ahead. Warmduscher? <laughs> How'd I do? This is a, a modern German expression yeah. for a man who's a little bit short on masculinity. He's a warm doucher, a warm <laughs> a shower. A warm <laughs> The whole thing long, about long, cold long bathing is, is it was it's a lot of fun. It's a very good story. It's it's very puritanical. It's partly to do with the cold regimen that uh, yes. that the, the neoclassicists sort of dreamt up as being sort of stimul a stimulant to the evacuations. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And and John Locke has it in his his book on education, so it became very right. influential. So I'm guessing, Virginia, that right around the start of the Christian era, we have, I know you've already alluded to, to it with those virgins, but y you begin to have, I, I think, a critique. It's a critique of the existing ruling societies that they are more concerned with surface in general, more concerned yeah. with surface, not concerned with uh, their immortal souls, with their inner purity. And so a great way to go at this would be, I would assume, around the question of cleanliness. Yes. Now, you would have thought that the Christian Church was very pro-cleanliness, but for the reasons I've said, it was actually ambivalent towards cleanliness and felt that too much of it was definitely not very holy and ticked off their bishops for having been too sort of sparkly clean. And they didn't approve of public baths, but it just shows... <laughs> In fact, the public baths movement was as strong in medieval Europe as it ever was ever again and, until sort of recently. And they took full advantage of all the hot spas and springs which were around, you know, in the, in the landscape and also built new ones like sweat lodges and sweat tubs. And they also had restaurants and food 
was carried round in the larger sort of urban spas or stews as they were called and they had a fine old time in fact and they would have probably gone on growing had it not been for the arrival of syphilis in the 1490s and also because it required an awful lot of timber to be cut down to to um, run them in fact some of these um, hot tubs and springs and so on go back a very very long long time and they count for the things like Finnish saunas and the Russian baths, hot baths. And you can see them even sort of in far-flung places like the Shetlands where they have burnt mounds where they've discovered sort of interior cave-like structures with tank- water tanks in the middle. And they used to heat up the water by throwing in hot rocks and basically create a sort of steam situation. So I, I want to just, uh, I, I want to, before we run out of time here, I, I want to just pivot slightly. So in the Gospels, Catherine, we start to encounter Jesus and the stories of Jesus, and he he is often depicted as eschewing those kinds of fineries that Virginia has just described in favor of, of sitting with the people that nobody else would sit with, which ultimately is to say the great unwashed, Right, right. Or I, let me just ask it a different way. How much does that does that influence actual behavior? I mean, it's one thing to tell a story about Jesus in that way. Do the early Christians basically embrace that? Well, there have been a lot of there are many shelves in libraries on this very vexed subject. But to cut to the chase, I will just say that for a variety of reasons, not all of which we understand. Jesus kind of opted out, not kind of, he opted out of a lot of the Jewish concern with ritual cleanliness. And like mikvahs, places where you would have to go and wash yourself after you had sex or before you went to to the synagogue or after you'd had a baby or all kinds of, all kinds of people were judged to be ritually unclean. And Jesus went out of his way to kind of, you know, cock a snook or thumb his nose at a lot of those things, sitting with lepers and, um, and taking on people who were pariahs. And I think that, um, Virginia talked about that, that, that the Christians, Christianity wanted to be more about inner purity than outer cleanliness, whereas the, uh, the, the older religions saw outer cleanliness as a kind of necessary step to get to inner purity. But for whatever reason, Christianity kind of jumped over that step. We're going to begin jumping over uh, millennia as we have this conversation because our time is limited. We do very much want to thank, uh, first of all, uh, Virginia Smith, historian, honorary fellow at the, of the Center for Public uh, uh, Center for History and Public Health at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, author of Clean. A History of Personal Hygiene and Purity. Uh, she has to leave us, unfortunately, now. Uh, Catherine Ashenberg will be with us the whole way, and it's our guide through lots of other baths and maybe not baths. Dirt and rhyme are clinging to this body of mine, and so I need to take a shower. I don't know. Must be a king. Why? He hasn't got all over him. That, of course, is from Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Uh, this is how you can tell somebody is a king because he doesn't have 
poop all over him. Uh, Monty Python uh, playing up the exaggeratedly dirty condition of peasants and the presumed cleanliness maybe of kings and, and knights. We are talking about all of that today. Uh, as I said before, uh, we are talking about it with Catherine Ashenberg, Toronto-based author of several prize-winning books, including The Dirt on Clean and Unsanitized History and All the Dirt, A History of Getting Clean. So um, we're speed dating through history now, Catherine, but um, I think it's fair to say that somewhere around 1000 AD and continuing for a few hundred years, there is in the Christian world now suddenly maybe a greater interest in outer cleanliness and getting one's exterior uh, a little bit cleaner. What does that have to do? Um, What does it have to do with? Where does it derive from? Well, um, I think that some of the, I, I have to call it fanaticism, of the early Christian church, where it was a mark of virtue not to wash, and people would compliment a monk or a her- hermit by saying, I could smell that holy man from a mile away. That was a super compliment. So I think things calmed down. Um, Christianity was stronger, so it kind of relaxed more and became more moderate. Um, what we used to call the Dark Ages was over, and the infrastructure of the Roman Empire, which had been very much destroyed, was beginning to be built up again. Um, Another thing that happened was the Crusades, and the Christian Crusaders came back from their failed Crusades in the Eastern territories, and they brought with them all kinds of wonderful luxuries like mirrors and roses and sweetmeats, and one of them was the idea of public baths steam baths, as a matter of fact, which was really where the Roman bath had gone, I won't say into hiding, but it's where it had gone after the fall of Rome could no longer support these amazing imperial baths. It was modified, but when you go to, say, a Turkish bath or a steam bath now or a hammam, you are going to the closest kissing cousin you can get of a Roman bath. Anyway, the Crusaders brought this this great news back, and these baths, as Virginia Smith said, um, were built all over Europe, steam baths. It's where we get our, and they, they had a connection with sex, too, which is where we get our adjective steamy for something that kind of has a sexual or erotic connotation. That came from these steam baths where men and women and neighbors and villagers would take off their clothes and get into a tub and steam themselves. Um, yes, and it does seem as though, I mean, we can sort of divide Western history up into little uh, chunks, but if there's a big chunk of Western history uh, that you document uh, very well, it is the notion that in general, over the millennium, um, Europeans were not as clean as people in India or China or or Japan, and that, um, I think as you put it, uh, Indians and Asians considered Westerners puzzlingly dirty. <laughs> so yes. say more about and, that. And they also were puzzled um, to get back to what we were talking about in the last half hour. They also noted that Christianity of all the great world religions was the only one that did not concern itself with um, cleanliness because Muslims and Greek, uh, Jews and Hindus all, you know, had to wash before praying, had to do all kinds of um, cl- cleaning themselves. But Christianity, no. So Yes, we've always been famous, we Westerners, <laughs> for <laughs> for being dirty. And also, we have glands. 
um, apocrine glands and maracrine glands, which make our perspiration, give our perspiration a much stronger odor than Asians do, who think that even a very clean Westerner will smell very strongly to an Asian nose because they lack those glands. See, this is helping me understand how Steve Bannon is rebelling against the Muslim world. He's just staying. He always looks like he's about four days away from his next shower. Exactly. Uh, So maybe that's his his way of making that kind of a statement. So, I mean, on the other hand, um, let's say between 1400 and the 1700s, I mean, you have conditions which suggest that maybe people are keeping clean enough, right? You've got plague, you've got syphilis, you've got all kinds uh, of problems that kind of attach themselves to the idea that maybe people aren't, in, in, in Western Europe anyway, thinking clearly enough about hygiene. Well, I agree from our perspective that that is very clear, but not from the greatest medical opinion of the day. And when the Black Death got to Europe in 1347, uh, an episode of the plague, which kept on coming, by the way, until the 18th century, but that particular one, uh, one out of every three Europeans died. And the King of France, horrified, went to the medical faculty at the Sorbonne in Paris and said, what's happening and what can we do to prevent this horrible thing? And the great doctors got together and said it's happening because of these various stars and movements of the planets. But what you can do to prevent it is these are the people who are most susceptible to getting the plague. They're fat, they're emotional, and they take warm baths because warm water allows your pores to open and the disease enters through the open pores. And with that, steam baths and communal baths all over Europe, the Germans were kind of the only one of the biggest holdouts. They just adored their steam baths and they kind of ignored that. But it was the end of communal bathing and village bathing uh, in Europe. And Europe entered a a period which the French historian Jules, Jules Michelet called a thousand years without a bath. That is a little bit of an exaggeration. It was more like, let's say, 300 years without a bath. But still, people were terrified of warm water, and they thought the way to be healthy was to literally clog up their pores because that way disease couldn't get inside you. Um, but as we get towards the Renaissance, it, it it does seem as though, and this is certainly something that you document in your books, I don't know, I was re-watching part of Wolf Hall yesterday, so where are we now? We're in the 1500s, and everybody's quite concerned with various sorts of fripperies of costumery and where did you get that particular gray velvet and all this kind of stuff. But what you say is that that was sort of the limit of it. Having beautiful and presumably relatively clean clothing was a much bigger deal than being clean at the level of your skin. I mean, weren't some of these monarchs actually famous for for like Henry IV of France for how stinky they were? Absolutely. And it was it, the surface was very, very, very important, but it stopped at the surface. So underneath those gorgeous cut velvets and brocades and ruffs were bodies that definitely never saw water. The richer you were, the more important you were in society, the less you would ever be close to water. And the king was probably among the dirtiest people in his country because his body was so precious that they would really try to keep the king from the dangers of warm water. So underneath those beautiful clothes were, you know, lice, um, all kinds of insects, bodies that never were washed. Um, And they believed that you cleaned yourself by putting on a fresh white linen shirt, which was 
partly underwear and partly something that showed both for men and women. For women, it would be called a chemise. For men, uh, a shirt. And it would peek through your clothes. And as it became more important, the fashion was to show more and more of it. But I don't know how old you are, but in my childhood, there were still ads for using a certain kind of washing soap so that you could avoid, quote, ring around the collar. You know, that mm-hmm. that that strip of grime that might attach to your inside of your cuffs and your collar? Those dirty rings. Yes. Yes, I'm old well, enough to remember. I'm actually old 70s, enough to remember when they thought movements of the stars caused the plague. So, yes, yes I do remember right. ring around the collar. That's right. Well, they thought when you took off your white linen shirt and you saw that ring around the collar and that ring around the wrist, that meant that scientifically the flax in the linen had removed your dirt and you were washing yourself. They called it the linen that washes. You were washing yourself much more effectively and and more importantly, more safely than if you had used water. Um, on the other hand, I mean, okay, so a lot of this stuff seems a little bit crazy. And yes, I mean, obviously these nobles who had many more resources than the average person, nonetheless, were not availing themselves and, and were content to have uh, uh, all kinds of smells. Uh, in your book, you mentioned that Louis Thirteenth, who's the son of Henry IV, says he boasts, I take after my father. I smell of armpits. Right. Um, yeah. so, um, so, so you've got that. On the other hand, let's just sort of fast forward to now for a moment. Moment. And, you know, I was mentioning this thing at the beginning about our, our new thinking about the biome and how I sort of make a point of absorbing the biome of my dog. But I mean, there's a lot of people like that. There's a sort of no poo movement that thinks you wash your hair way too much and you shouldn't be putting all kinds right. of soap and stuff. And, and there's sort of a sense now that we're keeping ourselves too clean. I, right. I don't know. Does any of that have, does it conjoin at all with the era that we're talking about now or is it a separate thing? I think it's. I mean, the end result is sort of the same, except that I don't think anybody is going to want to be or be as dirty as people were in the 17th century. But yes. I see the no-poo people and the and the other people who are sort of in revolt against current standards of cleanliness, I see them as taking a very useful stand against um, advertising, which has, I think, made us such dupes of, you know, how often we have to wash. So... I see that kind of separately. and But when you talk about the biome, um, that is really interesting. And and by the way, you snuggling up to your dog, there is scientific evidence that that is a good idea because it has been shown absolutely that the kids least likely to develop allergies and asthma and really life-threatening kinds of allergies are kids who live on a farm, have dogs and cats, have older brothers who are rather than sisters who are brothers being more likely to bring home more dirt uh have been to daycare etc 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 so they have now a profile of the children most vulnerable to allergies and asthma and the children least vulnerable and definitely snuggling around with a great big dirty dog is a, is a very good thing to do, especially if you're, you know, a baby or a toddler right. who's so, about to develop or not allergies. Let's actually hear one of the apostles uh, of this concept, Adam Carolla, otherwise known as a comedian. Uh, here he is talking about his approach. I've been saying this for years and years and years, and I'm tired of being called gross. Like, I tell people, 
I don't use shampoo. And they go, gross. You're just stripping away whatever nature put there. That's all you do is strip it away. And then you replace it in the form of conditioner. I take a quick, hot rinse. And I basically just take hot water and rinse my body off like twice a week. That's that's about it. What else yeah. is on the list? What else don't you just run it down? What else don't you need? Mouthwash, which is another one of those, you know, kill the floor and fauna thing. Like right. you're, you're artificially f***ing with things There's- a little bit. The other thing that wasn't on this list that people tweet me all the time, it's like chapstick. Once you start, you can't, and then they explain that there's an acid in most of it that actually causes your lips to be chapped. Thus, you... Believe you me, these people know what they're doing. It's not a conspiracy. It's a it's a play on vanity. All right, so... But, Howard, there's there's a 400-year road that we have to travel from, say, Henry IV to Adam Carolla, and it has many twists and turns in it, Catherine. I think it is worth mentioning that notwithstanding our 1,000 years without a bath, sometime in the, in the 18th century... Um, water gets fashionable again uh, among uh, the people of Western and maybe especially Northern Western Europe. What's going on there? Yes. Um, Kind of first the return of cold water, which actually happens as early as about 1700. Um, There are a couple treatises about how to bring up a boy, um, one of which was written by the philosopher John Locke. And it was a very English thing. I do not think the French were interested in this at all. But Cold water, these a couple very long medical treatises um, proved, quote unquote, uh, that a bath every day in cold water, or if you were a boy who was being brought up to be manly and strong and northern, dipping your legs in, you know, higher and higher elevations of cold water and um, wearing very flimsy shoes so that cold water could get in your shoes, all these things would cure a variety, a large variety of ills if you were a grown-up with health problems, and if you were a boy, would make you, you know, a good, strong, manly guy. And from there, I mean, these ideas were pretty bogus now from our point of view, but they made a very important conjunction between water and health, which people had been so afraid of for 300 years. Now it was cold water, like warm water and hot water were going to be. That was still a bridge too far for most people. But that was the start of thinking like, oh, maybe water is not the worst thing in the world. Right. And I think at some point the Reformation begins to play a role here, too. I mean, you certainly have got John Wesley eventually saying, we think he's the person who says for the first time cleanliness is next to godliness. He do- he does. We we don't just think that. I have read his little book in which he does say that. But I have to say, um, in spite of all the uses that mothers over the years have put that phrase to, he was talking about clean clothes, mm-hmm. not a clean body. But mm-hmm. obviously it proved to be a very adaptable phrase. But do we know how, this is a vast question, and I shouldn't ask it because we're going to be short on time no matter what, but there's a way in which, you know, even in our contemporary moral vocabulary, it's all kind of loaded up with these terms, right? If, so, if you call me a filthy creep, you probably don't mean the actual dirt on my body or my clothes. You're talking right. about the, uh, the, the filthiness of my soul and my behavior. And a dirty movie isn't physically dirty. It's, it's about kinds of illicit sex. So, so is it the Reformation that ultimately does pin that idea to a notion of morality? That is such a good question, and I've, I'm really, I don't know the answer to that, but I'm going to think about that. And I have certainly noted um, myself just ideas like filthy lucre, or even a, and in modern times we'll be in a kind of 
icky moral situation and will say, and afterwards I just wanted to take a shower. Right. Like there is some connection between bodily cleanliness and moral cleanliness, which I must look that up in Shakespeare or something. I I have the feeling, uh, and if Virginia were still with us, she would say that that has been from the beginning. Yeah, it probably I, is is sort of on the same line as all those ritual baths. Right. I think I think it's part of the approach avoidance or, or the somewhat um, you know the sort of Janus faced uh, nature of our, our thinking about all this. It probably comes and goes a bit. I think if we had a Fro- strict Freudian here on the show, that they would say that filthy lucre ultimately has to do with some kind of um, preconscious equation between feces and money, which right, Freud was very right. good about linking to. Anyway, that's a whole other conversation. We have to take a break anyway. So we're going to take a break. We're going to come back. We're going to have more of Catherine and more of hygiene. And we'll try to get you all the way to the present. Did you know that James Cagney never actually said, you dirty rat? I just wanted to bring that up because so many rats were unfairly made to feel dirty. Today's show was produced by the unwashed Josh Nolea and me, Kion Wolf. Amanda Fish smells fishy in a good way. The part of Bill Curry was played by Steve Bannon. And now, back to Colin. 80% of germs can be transmitted by hand. And when used daily, Purell Advanced helps reduce your chance of getting sick. The worst thing about toilet germs, they don't stay in the toilet. Disinfect your bathroom with Lysol Bathroom Trigger, Lysol Power Foamer, and Lysol Toilet Bowl Cleaner. Are my teeth yellow? Have you tried the tissue test? Hold this up to your teeth. Oh, yellow. What do you use? Crest White Strips. You should try them. The world is filled with extraordinary armpits. New Secret Invisible Spray goes on clear because your pit is perfect. So show them off. All right. So, uh, oh, there's uh, so much that I want to talk about uh, here with Catherine Ashenberg in so little time, Toronto-based author of several prize-winning books, including The Dirt on Clean, an Unsanitized History, and All the Dirt, A History of Getting Clean. You know what I think we're going to have to do? We're going to have to do a whole separate show on syphilis. I, I actually do. I actually seriously do think that because we wanted to talk about it today and there's not going to be any time. And I've been oh, thinking, okay. well, I've been thinking about it a lot, Catherine, too, because um, I've been watching this uh, uh, series on of Queen Victoria and there's a moment in which her husband, Albert's brother, uh, has syphilis and he's taken to a doctor and the doctor has just the perfect thing for it. But it's like sitting in a room filled with mercury vapor, you know, which I'm guessing probably isn't uh, that, oh, wow. that, that great an idea. But I think one of the things, you know, as as we industrialize and we develop more chemical compounds, on the one hand, we have things in our environment that you probably should get off your skin as quickly as possible. But the problem is we don't always know which, which things those are. Yeah. Sometimes we mistake the things that are are, are are dangerous for the things that are helpful, and vice versa. But mm-hmm. I want to speed forward here and just sort of get in get uh, into now. So um, America, uh, I'm guessing in its early stages, the United States is probably pretty much as dirty as uh, as Europe. But I guess sometime around the end of the Civil War, uh, things take some kind of a turn. What would that turn be? Yeah, and it was one of the most unexpected um, things that I learned while researching the book. Um, the um, 
Olmstead, the great landscape architect uh, who made Central Park in New York City, was and is from Hartford at the beginning of the war to run something that everyone laughed at called the Sanitary Commission. And to everybody's surprise, because it was thought to be kind of a make-work project for middle-class ladies and etc., to everyone's surprise, these very simple ideas, taken a lot of them from Florence Nightingale, um, of just washing yourself, washing your hands, using clean sheets, whatever possible, brushing your teeth, at the most casualties in war are caused more by infection and illness than by gunshot wounds. And the statistics at the end of the Civil War, I don't have them at the top of my head, but compared with the Spanish-American War in 1848, were inarguable that these simple hygienic measures had saved the lives of more Civil War soldiers. So people began to, Americans began to think, oh, there's something to cleanliness. And we who do not have inherited class distinctions, we can distinguish ourselves in terms of who is more or less like a gentleman or a lady by how clean we are. And then beginning in the 1880s, an additional reason was the vast hordes of immigrants from Southern and Eastern Europe. And just as the Romans had decided um, almost 2,000 years before that, we're going to make these, you know, savage Britons into Romans by showing them about public baths. The Americans decided we're going to Americanize these foreigners by teaching them, giving them public baths, which never quite worked in America. They came a little bit too late, just as apartments and tenements were getting their own indoor plumbing. But it was so interesting that these two things came together, the success in mortality, less, lessening mortality in the Civil War, and the immigrants. Uh, and then, of course, it was more possible in America than in Europe. Uh, a new country, very good, you know, the best plumbing in the world, people living in houses rather than congested apartments that had been, you know, 200 or 300 years old, as in Europe. So, practically speaking, it was all easier. And then, the unholy marriage of advertising and the new first toilet soaps that you would wash your body with came in and the advertisers just saw gold uh, very correctly and started to sort of um, hone their tools and sort of bring themselves up on soap so that America became this country that was just overrun with rather brilliant in terms of manipulating people, but rather sinister, too, in terms of manipulating people, ads um, telling people, you know, you're offending other people without even knowing it. You need our soap. You need our deodorant. You need our toothpaste. You need our mouthwash. So all those things came together to make Americans definitely the cleanest people in the Western world. I would say Japanese people are the cleanest in the entire world. But America just leapfrogged ahead of Europe in terms of standards of cleanliness for for good and for ill. Right. Um, so oh, there's so much more. We're just only got about two or three minutes left. But I just want to kind of double down on what you just said, because I do think post-World War II, there's this kind of concatenation of things, right? You've got, first of all, an experience which began to erase some of the uh, remaining class distinctions. Everybody kind of flung together in one massive effort, in one massive army. Um, 
it's followed by a post-war boom where people have disposable income uh, in, in the sense that maybe they have a little bit more class mobility than they had uh, at the beginning of the 20th century. So yeah, you've suddenly got this industry where people are becoming homeowners for the first time. Maybe they want a certain kind of bathroom. So you've got companies like Kohler selling these high-end fixtures. You've got Canon uh, making towels into something other than a utilitarian item, something that's actually sort of a luxury item that needs to be a certain kind of thing, right? You've suddenly got this idea that the bathroom is no longer a utilitarian place. It's a place where you become more fully you. Yeah. Yes. And um, it it becomes, there's a very famous um, article that used to be given to anthropology students. An anthropologist named Horace Minor wrote a spoof, which nobody knew was a spoof for a long time, about the civilization called the Nasi Rema, who had a household shrine where they went in alone, and they did very special things from a special cabinet from which they took magical potions. And finally, after a while, it became known that Nasi Rema is American spelled backwards, and that the household shrine, this holy of holies, was the bathroom. Or, you know, in the 19th century, the room that nobody, that ladies could never even be seen to enter. It was so shameful, literally. And now it has become, I'm I'm guessing that probably more money is still spent on kitchens, but the bathrooms are edging up there with all these new, um, amazing ameliorations and improvements. And, it, it, and, and houses... There are now many middle-class houses that have more bathrooms than they have bedrooms. Right. I think even the notion, even the phrase master bathroom kind of connotes yeah. this notion that you can you can master your environment. You can master all these scary things about dirt and germs and stuff like that. You can master your class status, too, and move upwardly as you Absolutely. as you choose to do. It's sort of all there loaded up into that one term. Hey, this has been a terrific conversation. Uh, and Catherine Ashenberg, you have been a joy to talk to, Toronto-based author and, uh, of several prize-winning books, including The Dirt on Clean and Unsanitized History and All the Dirt history of getting clean. I'm certainly... I, I should just jump sure. in and say All the Dirt is the kids' version for 9 to 12-year-olds of the of the first book. Oh, oh, oh great. Well, yeah. they're obviously a, a must for, I don't know, Easter giving? Uh, anyway, <laughs> thanks so much for joining us today. It's been fun to talk to you. Thanks to Josh Nalea, who conceived of this show. And uh, set your calendars for our upcoming show about syphilis. I didn't really set calendars, do you? A- anyway, we have to do a show about syphilis. Uh... I bet you're all looking forward to that so much. But come on, like Beethoven and everything. All right, we are going to go, but we're going to come back tomorrow with a different show. It's about the high cost of dying. Look in a microscope, that's what we mean. And go play with a tree limb. Just know when you're done that you gotta go clean them. Choose clean, I selected, so cover me in. Antiseptic, I'll be the clean president if elected.